kind to talk about as the New Year's thing because otherwise when I'm back in two weeks, it'll be so far from the New Year's it won't count. <laughs> I was going to tell you, by the way, about uh, a, a three-night retreat at Santa Sabina that I am teaching in February 14th, 24th to 27th. So if you want to know about that, Santa Sabina Center in San Rafael, is a, it's a three-day retreat, three-night retreat that I'm teaching there in the end of February. And if you have some interest in that, come and look at that later. And this is the, this is, this is the magazine that I thought I would just show you, by the way. This Mindful Living with Awareness and Compassion. This must be volume one, number one. Special supplement to the Shambhala Sun. And on the practices, uh, among the practices for your life, here's the first one about arrive early. Not only arrive on time, arrive early. So I'll tell you this practice in case you feel like doing it this week, whether it's your habit or not your habit, because it says, for the next seven days, see if you can be early for scheduled appointments. Early for scheduled appointments. Notice how this impacts your state of mind. Do meetings feel more spacious? Do you feel more relaxed and better prepared? These seem like rhetorical questions, you know, like, do you feel that more is actually accomplished? Then it has a sub-rule to the practice. If you are late, relaxed. Just be late. Don't give yourself a bad time about it. So. Okay, now. I'm already on. Who knew? Okay. <laughs> Maybe I wouldn't have said that, but who, I did. I wanted to say Happy New Year again and tell you one of the, um, the metaphor that I'd like to use to start for this year. It's always starting again. Somebody sent me um, a 20-page uh, email of photos of roads. There's a, I, mean, I don't know if you'll be able to see, here's a road, it's going up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. This is a, a winding road going around. This one didn't print, this one didn't print, nor this, but this one did. This is a road that goes through stone tunnels. It looks like a mountain road in the Swiss Alps. This is a road that goes around and around and around and around and around. It looks like one of those uh, nighttime pictures of outside of Las Vegas or some other lit up city. And the bottom is a, 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 a winding road through cornfields. Anyway, I think you get the idea that these are various types of roads and, making, and the, making the point, which they do in some part of the text, that everybody's life road is different. But it ends with a message for your life road. And uh, it ends with this picture because it, it's just been our new year, but in a month it's going to be the Chinese New Year. And uh, as of uh, the 3rd of February, it will be the year of the rabbit. And uh, the, year, uh, the year of 2011 is the year of the rabbit. 
the rabbit is the fourth sign of the Chinese zodiac, which consists of 12 animals. The rabbit is a lucky sign. According to Chinese tradition, the rabbit brings a year in which you can, whoa, this did not print out, <laughs> in which you can catch your something. I think it's breath. It is time for, it is a time for negotiation. To gain the be greatest benefits from this time, focus on home, family, security, diplomacy with others, especially with women and children. But then it adds, make it a goal to create a safe, peaceful lifestyle so you'll able to deal calmly with everything that happens. Seems to me that that should be really the goal of every year. It probably is in some way the goal of every year. And I was thinking about it particularly because I was on a panel Monday morning talking about uh, New Year's resolutions. And the person who convened the panel started by saying, everybody, I don't know if this is true, everybody makes resolutions around the new year and what do you think of that? And um, people had different ideas and they said, well, there are different New Year's. There's the Chinese New Year. This new year in the Gregorian calendar. There's Rosh Hashanah, which is the new year in the Hebrew calendar. Uh, there's each new year that starts on your birthday every year, where you mark, okay, now I've finished these many years and I'm starting my 75th year or my 80th or my 60th or whatever, or my next decade. And, uh, and really, uh, there were those... Um, uh, stickers, buttons and bumper stickers that were very popular about a decade ago that said, today is the first day of the rest of your life, which is always true. I mean, we could decide tomorrow that it's uh, the day that we're really undertaking a new direction in the road of our life, which is why I brought all the roads. People who uh, join a 12-step group and are successful in their 12-step practice have the day that they joined as a birthday, and they celebrate that, so that my friend, my my friend, can tell me that she is has her twenty-two year pin, in from her group, so and it remains an important landmark time, particularly because on that day twenty-two years ago, she made a decision that her life was going to go in a certain way forever with these particular parameters in it and these particular things that she eschewed that she stopped doing and other because she wanted her life to go in a certain way. So I thought about reflecting about on, in the beginning of the year what's what's um, if we were to make each of us if I were to make a New Year's resolution someone else um, uh, brought up uh, uh, the, the, the moderator who, who began this discussion said, you know, we make all these resolutions and uh, everybody breaks them pretty soon. I thought, I'm not sure that that's true. I mean, my friend with the 22 years didn't break the resolution. Uh, people all the time uh, in, long, uh, in long partnerships make a resolution and don't break it. Uh, so I thought, I'm not sure that people always break. But I, I was remember I, I was reminded of um, uh, uh, an experience in about 1995. It has to be a long time ago, because Kalu Rinpoche, the 
formidable and venerable Tibetan Lama, uh, who no longer is alive, uh, was teaching. And I was at a teaching that he gave in San Francisco. And it was at a uh, bodhisattva initiation. So everybody who was there was there to participate in taking bodhisattva vows. And bodhisattva vow is uh, something like, uh, although suffering is endless, I vow to end it. Although beings are infinite, I vow to end their suffering. And uh, I, was, I was, for a long time, I, I found that a very kind of enigmatic uh, vow. And uh, I'm, in myself, I, you know, I, who knows how I'm supposed to take it. But I, uh, I understand it now that the vow to end suffering uh, is the vow to end the suffering in my own heart. Uh, so that how I manifest in the world and with all the beings that I meet is free from uh, uh, is free from any creating any kind of anguish. Um, that it needs to be a personal vow. But the thing that I remembered very much about that experience—it was a wonderful experience is that uh, Kali Rinpoche said two things. He said, first of all, don't worry about taking these vows if you're not a vowed Buddhist, you know, if you have another religious tradition. He says, don't worry about it. It's a, good, um, it's a good vow to take anyway, and it actually fits with everybody's religion, so it can't hurt you. Then he said, oh, actually, he said three things. He said, um, he said, don't worry if it's not your religion. He said, don't worry about the fact that when you take vows from a certain lama, you are that then in a, in a relationship with that lama for the rest of the lama's life, you are their disciple. He said, don't worry about that because I'm old and uh, I'm going to die soon. So you don't have to worry about that either. And then he said a third thing. He said, uh, don't worry about breaking this vow. Because you will. He said, it's not about being absolutely fulfilling this vow every minute of your life because you'll have accidents. You'll become distracted. You'll accidentally, through distraction, talk hastily, act hastily, do something peremptorily that will cause suffering to yourself and other people. It's not about fulfilling the vow. It's about pointing yourself in the direction of that vow. So it was another reason why I really liked uh, the, the, all those pages of different roads going all kinds of ways and through all kinds of terrain, because it, me it, the, it meant to me that everybody's life takes twists and turns, and sometimes we get lost, and sometimes we're in tunnels, and sometimes we can't find the way, and sometimes the road has looped around and gone different in, in a different direction from where we thought we were going. <laughs> I'm laughing <laughs> because just you know, sometime in this week, I was so intent on thinking something that I drove past the exit on the freeway that I wanted to get off at, and you know, I, it's not like I don't know what exit to get off at. It's all of a sudden, whoops, you know, and I have to go up and turn over the overpass and come back. 
I think to myself, this is no good driving distracted, but you know, I saw where I was going. But anyway, I missed the exit. But that, I think what Kala was saying was we miss all the time making the choice that we really wanted to make or had planned to make. And the important thing is to have decided to make that choice. And then when you don't make it, there's like a bell that goes off in the mind that says, whoops, sooner or later, maybe not that minute. But when I come to sit, my mind really quite naturally does a moral inventory. On small stuff often, you uh, really could have stayed longer on the phone yesterday talking to so-and-so who wanted to talk a little bit longer. You really could have been a little bit more careful about what you said to so-and-so. That if I sit and I don't even say to myself, now I am going to do a searching moral inventory, a searching moral inventory happens. Does that happen to you? I love that that happens to people because it's, my, it's actually my conviction that we are born with a moral inventory machine, so to speak, that it gets guided by our families, of course. And, but if we are born with healthy bodies and neurology and able to develop in a normal way as human beings, that we grow up recognizing that we live in a world with other people, that our actions affect them, that we're just as their actions affect us. And we become sensible, sensitive and sensible about not hurting each other or, and about responding to, to pain just because we're human beings. And if we take time, if I take time, my mind will say to me, whoops, you made a mistake. But it won't say it in a, in a, in a, um, in a terrible way. It'll just, it will say it in a way that I can hear it. Sometimes if I get too many of those messages, I think that's enough for today. But, uh, but I actually like the idea that we ha that, that's built into human beings. I wanted to tell you about Kalu having said that. There was one more thing that I wanted to tell you about uh, being here and uh, that came out of that making intentions for the new year. Oh, that for my moral inventory machine to be in good shape and to work, I need to have enough time for me to hear the voice of my of my moral inventory. I need to hear my interior voice. One of the things that happened for me this week, which I'm very excited about, is I have a new smartphone. I, you know, my, my, my grandchildren are amazed. I can text, I can text very quickly because I not only have a phone with a good keyboard for texting, but I have a phone where you push, a, you push text, you push a little microphone, and you say, Colin, this is Grandma, I love you, bye-bye. And you push send, and it types it out and sends. And he writes back and says, do you have a phone that you can talk to? And I said, I do. You have no idea how I go up in people's esteem because I have a talking phone. But not only that, I can check my email. And, I, you know, I, I spent all last night at dinner showing my husband how to do it, you know. 
And I, I tell you that this is a like, full confession, requires, candor requires, full disclosure requires that I tell you that I have such a phone that you could spend your entire life on. And there would be no time that there wouldn't be unfilled by input, you know. If I were waiting for the dentist or in a doctor's appointment, I could see where the Ring series is playing in which opera house next year. I did that yesterday. Can, yeah, yeah, I have access to Google. I can do anything. I can see what different critics thought of different performances. You could, you know, you're carrying the world around in this little telephone. The, 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 the point that I have been thinking about is not that nobody should have a telephone. I think it's a marvelous thing, you know. For someone who was born in the era of Dick Tracy talking into his wristwatch <laughs> across the street, from somebody else, and it wasn't <clears throat> it wasn't a telephone. It was a walkie-talkie, which is really nothing but two tin cans on the end of a string. <coughs> For a person who remembers those walkie-talkies, it's totally magic to be able to do that. But I think it's a, it's a, just an extra challenge to living the contemplative life. Somebody told me recently, a man I met. Um, it, it's, doesn't even matter where, at a, at a conference whose uh, work I admire, told me that when he moved to uh, New York City, he's not a meditation teacher, has another vocation. He told me when he moved to New York City from his uh, fairly small town in, in, the south, uh, in, the, in the southeast United States, he said, the first thing I did was I joined a, a fairly conservative Episcopal church not far from where I live in uh, in New York City. He said, it's way more conservative than my theology, my personal theology, but it's, uh, it's hymns are the same ones that I grew up with, and it's liturgy is the same one that I grew up with. And I go there for an hour on Sunday morning, and he said, so it's comfortable for me to be there. I know the hymns, and I know the form. And he said, I go there for my one hour of an interior life. And then he said the line that I most wanted to tell you. He said, it's very hard to have an interior life in New York City. So I think it's very, and I, I want to extrapolate that. I want to say it's very hard to have an interior life anywhere. You know, I think maybe it's always been hard to have an interior life, but I'm not so sure. I think a hundred years ago without so much media input, Maybe there was more time for reflection when we were a more agrarian culture and people were out plowing fields or, or, or weeding gardens all day. Maybe there was naturally more time for inner reflection. But I think it's even more uh, crucial than ever now because there's so many ways to fill mental hours, waking hours, with input. It's hard to hear one's inner voice. This was where there was actually a discussion about what is your authentic self? And people talked about following your passion. And other people talked about uh, uh, seeing that passion, whatever it is, in the context of other people and how that, how that plays out in the world. But being able to have time to know what is my passion, what would I, what what do I most want? 
I must want, really, to have, what was the last line of that rabbit injunction? A safe and peaceful lifestyle so I'll be able to deal calmly with the challenges of my life. It doesn't even sound very, it certainly doesn't sound metaphysical. Um, but for me to have that, I'd really, I'd really need to know certain things which is the beginning and the end of really what I wanted to begin to say today and continue in the weeks to come. I thought we'd start the year by, doing, by going through the uh, Eightfold Path of the Buddha, the, the, the fourth noble truth, that there's a path to developing the kind of mind and heart that stays peaceful and responsive that doesn't get caught up in the passing moods, passing responses that arise in the mind that isn't held hostage by a view that doesn't work, really a self-serving view or a limited view. It isn't held hostage by greed or hatred. It's a mind that actually remembers that time is very limited. You know, the, in, uh, in Buddhist practice, in Buddhist practice, one of the insights, there are three <coughs> crucial insights that people hope to realize. When I first heard this, when my, my teachers began to teach this in the beginning of my practice, they'd say, now I'm going to tell you the three insights that are the insights that you'll hope to have through meditation. And I would think to myself, no, 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 don't tell me. If you tell me, then I won't know if I have that insight, if it's a genuine insight, or you just told it to me, you know. How will I know the difference between a genuine insight? But they went, I didn't say that, I just thought that. And then they barreled right on and they told me those insights. And the truth is that, uh, in my experience at least, they feel different when you experience them in some deeply interior way than when you hear about them. So now I'll tell you those three insights. I'll tell, oh no, don't tell me. Uh, and I'll tell them to you in the context of the beginning of the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path either begins or ends with wise understanding and wise um, uh, ambition, wise uh, intention, uh, something like a wise attitude. Um, but the, the, those attitudes come together as I understand more and more of what's true about the nature of suffering in the mind and, and in the body as well, but how suffering arises, why it arises, and that it's possible to end suffering. Not pain, not pain, but a mind that's contentious with things that it can't change. Really, that's what the Buddha taught. How to be able to do this life, if you think about the, 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 the prayers that we made for the people that we were thinking about. Because when we say, I am thinking about so-and-so, it's, it's equivalent to saying, I am praying for their well-being. It means I'm thinking about them with a good heart, and I wish that they don't suffer. <clears throat> To be able to realize, as we do at the end of that sitting, 
how this life of ours is really a series of challenges from the beginning to the end. It's not meant to be otherwise, that the very awareness of temporality, that our lives are passing along, we're on some place on the conveyor belt of life between the beginning of it and the end of it. For myself, I always find it remarkable that I got here as fast as I did. Doesn't it seem to you that we got here awfully fast yesterday? I was quite young. And now my grandchildren are graduating from college. I have really no idea of how that happened. Well, I have an idea, but it doesn't feel like it took so long. It feels like yesterday. And my friends are being, more of my friends are sick than they used to be. The landscape of my contemporaries is full of people being sick with this or that or the other affliction. If my mind is awake, that awareness of uh, the, the uh, difficulties and the challenges of life is also accompanied by the awareness of the courage of human beings to do this life in spite of the fact that it's continually challenging our ability to accept, to acknowledge, say this is what's true now, used to be otherwise, but this is what's now true, and to de develop a mind that's um, accommodating, not quiescent, not, pla not, um, uh, it's not a practice of um, passivity. We do everything we can to keep ourselves as well as we can, as comfortable as we can for as long as we can. But there's, you know, as long as. But the awareness of temporality, that life is zipping by, is a tremendous um, uh, inspirer for me to try to make my mind an, ac an accommodating mind that not only accommodates my own changes, but it accommodates the foibles of the people in my family that I might otherwise get annoyed at, or my friends, or my colleagues, or my my political leaders or the people in the world. I'd like to have a mind that greets everyone and everything in a friendly and warm way. That would be my intention for myself and my life. The three things that the Buddha said we needed to understand were temporality, that everything that arises passes away. That's actually the, always stated as the first of those three. Um, if they're the three elements of wise understanding, which is, in, in some cases, and I'm going to use it today, the beginning of the Eightfold Path, just to tell you the whole gist of the Eightfold Path, so we'll come to it in weeks to come. So wise understanding, wise attitude, or wise intention, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. Sometimes those two first ones of wise understanding and wise intention are in the beginning, and sometimes they're at the end, because they are both at the beginning, they're really both at the beginning and at the end. That to the degree that my understanding deepens, my intention deepens, and then my zeal to live wisely in action and in speech and in livelihood and in effort and in mindfulness and concentration are also increased, which then deepen my understanding, which then deepens my inspiration or my intention. 
It sounds easier than it is. But it's clear to me that distractedness is really the, 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 the challenges. There are so many things to challenge. Paying attention to where I'm going. It's very easy to get annoyed with my body for not being what it used to be, with my friends, my colleagues, my partner, my children, my family, my world, for not being exactly how I'd rather it was. We can be annoyed all the time at something or other. It's very easy. <laughs> Sometimes I think one false move, we get annoyed. Too much traffic, boom. <laughs> Especially, if you're late. Especially if you're late. I'd like to have an unannoyable mind. <laughs> which doesn't sound very lofty, it doesn't sound very enlightened, but uh, I could, it would sound better if I'd said I'd like to have a mind filled with equanimity. Deepama, who was a Bengali uh, woman, meditation teacher, my teacher, Sharon Salzberg's teacher, Jar Joseph Goldstein's, many people's teacher, Jack, uh, used to say about herself, who was a woman I admired tremendously, for her incredible equanimity and wonderful happiness that radiated from her, said uh, in response to what's in your mind, she said, well, not too much, just um, concentration, loving kindness, and peace. I thought, huh, that's what I'd like. I would like to have that in my mind as filling my whole mind. So... The first of the of the the first of the three awarenesses is temporality. Everything that's arising is passing away. We have very little time. The second is that suffering is what manifests when there is tension in the mind about what's experienced, what it is experiencing. It doesn't mean that we have to that we're meant to cultivate uh, minds that like everything that's happening. There's so many things that happen that are disagreeable and so many, uh, so many uh, situations or people or a world that can startle the mind into a kind of tension it should be otherwise. But really suffering, the Buddha taught, is the tension in the mind that cannot accommodate, this is what's happening, now what should I do? It's not, this is what's happening, you know, just, I'll go with it. But this is what's happening, what should I do? I actually think it's, it's the opposite of a passive acceptance, is this is what's happening, what can I do? And doing it. So I think that that's the second one. And the third of the awarenesses is that everything is contingent on everything else. It's a way of rephrasing karma, that everything happens doesn't happen out of the blue. It happens because of circumstances. Some of them are human circumstances. Some of them are natural circumstances. The people on the beach at Phuket when the tsunami came just happened to be there. And the tsunami was something that nobody planned and knew about. And so it wasn't, wasn't it didn't have, the tsunami didn't have to do with the people who were there just had to do with the time that it happened. And the people who were there were there because of any number of reasons. I had a cousin on the beach at Phuket who left four hours before the tsunami to go back to school in Australia. Just because he left, he wasn't there. Because someone else didn't leave, they were there. The, the third of the understandings of um, 
things that the uh, things that you could see insights is that of um, the uh, connectedness of all things, the interconnection, interbeing, Thich Han calls it. And sometimes we see those things and they're inspiring and sometimes they're frightening. I wanted to read to you, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, maybe mention it to you and you might want to read it. In this week's issue of The New Yorker, the January 3rd issue of The New Yorker, there's a short story by Stephen... Milhauser that's very beautiful. It begins, I, I won't read you the whole thing, but I, I, it begins, he's nine going on ten, skinny, tall, shoulder blades pushing out like things inside a paper bag, new blue bathing suit, too tight here, too loose there, but what's all that got to do with anything? What's important is that he's here, standing by the picnic table, the sun shining on the river, the smell of pine needles and water, river water, sharp in the air, somewhere a shout, laughter, music from a radio, his father's cleaning ashes out of the grill, his mother and sister are laying down blankets on the sunny grass not far from the table. Grandma's carrying one of the aluminum folding chairs towards the high, toward the high pine near the edge of the drop to the river, and he's doing what he likes to do best, what he's really good at, standing around doing nothing. <laughs> Everyone's forgotten about him for a few seconds, the way it happens sometimes. You try not to remind anybody you're there. He loves this place. On the table's the fat thermos jug with the white spout near the bottom. After his swim, he'll push the button on the spout and fill up a paper cup with pink lemonade. It's a good sound. In the picnic basket, he can see two packages of hot dogs, jars of relish and mustard, some bun ends showing a box of Oreo cookies, a bag of marshmallows, which are marshmallows, so why the A, paper plates sticking up sideways, a brown folded over paper bag of maybe cherries. All week long, he's looked forward to this day. Nothing's better than setting off on an all-day outing in summer to the park by the river, the familiar houses and vacant lots no longer sitting there with nothing to do, but drifting toward you through the car window the heat of the sun-warmed seat burning you through your jeans, the bottoms of your feet already feeling the pebbly ground, pushing up the, on them as you walk from the parking lot to the picnic ground above the riverbank. So when I had read that, isn't that beautiful? When I had read that far, I thought, uh-oh, something bad is going to happen. Did you think that? Now, so it's not just my mind. It's too beautiful of a day, right? Something bad is going to happen. It's also remarkable because it's written through the eyes of someone who really sees. You know, if you think about mindfulness, it's the most amazing description of a folded over paper bag, the hot dog buns, of this, of that, of this, of that, the, the, the buildings pushing into your vision as you approach them. Grandma's sitting, his parents are gone. It goes on and on, and he's loath to move into the day. And then as you read, it's a really glorious description of him having had a wonderful week anticipating this and anticipating every moment sensually of what's going to happen, what's going to happen, and what's going to happen. And being very excited, you actually get a feeling of the thrill of anticipation. 
And people often remark that the thrill of desire before the event itself is better than the event, you know. So, but the thrill of anticipation, thinking it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Okay, three pages later, he's moved over to the riverbank where his sister is already swimming. But he's loath to move because he reiterates many times, if I move, the day will have begun. And if it's begun, it will end. So he gets to the riverbank. He says, everything has led up to this moment. No, wrong. He isn't there yet. The moment's just ahead of him. This is the time before the waiting stops, and he crosses over into what he's been waiting for. He inhales the river smell, takes it deep into his nostrils. He's been moving toward the moment that's about to happen ever since he woke up this morning, ever since last week, when his father came home from work with his briefcase still in his hand and said they'd be going to Indian Cove on Saturday if the weather held. Every day he could feel it coming closer. It was like waiting for a trip to the amusement park, like waiting for the circus tents to rise out of the fields, the next town over in another second. The waiting will end. The day will officially begin. It's what he's been hoping for. But here at the edge of the river, he doesn't want to let the waiting go. He wants to hang on with all his might. He's standing on the shore of the river. The brown-green ripples are breaking at his toes. The sun is shining. Julia's waving him on. The white barrels are rising and falling gently. And what he wants is to go back to the wooden <laughs> sign with the tomahawk and start waiting for the shore of the river. What's wrong with him? Why can't he be like Julia? He loves this day, doesn't he? Any second now, he'll be standing in the water up to his knees, swishing his hands around. He'll go in up to his bathing suit. He'll wet his chest and shoulders, hop on the tube and paddle out to Julia. He'll laugh in the sun. Later, he'll throw himself on his blanket, feel the sun drying out his wet suit. He'll eat a hot dog in a bun, drink pink lemonade from the jug, He'll be sluggish with sun and happiness. At the end of the day, he'll change out of his suit in the creaking wooden bathhouse. He'll fall asleep in the car on the way home under the streetlights. But now, as he stands at the end of waiting, something is wrong. He's shaken deep down as if he'll lose something if the day begins. If he goes into the river, he'll lose the excitement the feeling that everything matters because he's getting closer and closer to the moment he's been waiting for. When you have that feeling, everything's full of life, every leaf, every pebble. But when you begin, you're using things up. The day starts slipping away behind you. He wants to stay on this side of things, to hold it right here. A nervousness comes over him, a chilliness in the sun. In a moment, the day will begin to end. Things will rush away behind him. The day he's been waiting for is practically over. He sees it now. He sees it. Ending is everywhere. It's right here in the beginning. They don't tell you about it. It's hidden away in things. Under the shining skin of the world, everything's dead and gone. The sun is setting. The day is dying. Grandma's lying in her coffin. Her crooked hands are crossed on her chest. His pretty mother's growing old. Her fingers are thick and bent. Her brown hair is stringy white. No one can stop it. Julia's dying. His father's dying. The Coke bottle's crumbling away to green dust. Everything's nothing. If he stands still, if he doesn't move a muscle, maybe he can keep it from happening. 
Things will stop and no one will ever die. His body's shaking. He can't breathe here at the water's edge. He's at the end of everything. You can't live unless there's a way to hold on to things. He can't go back because he's already used it up. He can't go forward because then it all begins to end. He's stuck in this place where nothing means anything. It's streaming in on him like a darkness, like a sickness. He's seen something he isn't supposed to see. Only grown-ups are allowed to see. It's making him as old. It's ruining everything. His temples are pounding. His eyes are pounding. He feels a scream rising in his chest. He's going to fall down on the sandy orange earth. Ahoy, matey, shouts Julia. And with a wild cry that tears through his throat, he steps over the line and begins his day. He's seen something that only grown-ups are supposed to see. It brings tears, doesn't it? Yeah. So that's what we're supposed to see. I'm glad I read it to you because uh, sometimes when uh, when I when I used to say to my teachers, uh, "Don't tell me that insight because how will I know it's an insight?" If I feel it, they said, no, when you get it as an insight, you'll feel it differently. And you just did. You know, what would we do if we really realized that zip, it's gone? Um, What would we do? And for myself, um, maybe particularly at the new year, but maybe every day, it's a time for me to say, you know, what do I want? When I tell you that story about Deepa Ma saying, my mind is filled with nothing but concentration, loving kindness, and peace. And I say it as if, well, you know, that was Deepa Ma, it couldn't be me. Why couldn't it? Why couldn't it be you? Why couldn't it be any one of us? We're people. She was a person. She wasn't a monk. She was a Bengali woman who had... um, two daughters, one of whom died not so long before or after her husband died. She lived in Calcutta in ordinary, actually difficult circumstances. And actually it was pursuant to the loss of her husband and her daughter that she began her tremendously zealous meditation practice. And it was some years later that I met her. But why shouldn't we all have tremendously zealous practices? Maybe maybe in this one remaining minute we should make the wish that without being um, prompted by tragedy we could all uh, suddenly be inspired with zeal to have that kind of a mind. That's That's a good place to end. We'll count it as wise understanding in the first of the Eightfold Path, and when I see you in two weeks, we'll, uh, we'll count it as wise understanding and wise intention the first two of the Eightfold Path.
May it be so for all of us and everyone that we know and all beings everywhere that this is a year of um, growing understanding between everyone in the world and growing peace. <laughs>